Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, it is it is both good and right and also needful that we should be reminded not just who you are, but who we are by your grace, by your eternal purpose, by your incomprehensible accomplishment in Jesus our Lord. Father, we do live in troubling times, but your people have always lived in troubling times. And in many ways, we have been allowed to to live in the delusion of security, of peace, of settledness. But it is just that, it is a delusion. This world continues to groan and to wrestle and to fight in the enmity that still characterizes it. And Father, we find the vestiges of that struggle even in our own hearts. As Cliff reminded us, we're given to waywardness, we're given to unbelief, we're given to fear, we're given to doubt. We're given to earthly mindedness. But Father, I do pray that we would be those who would continue to grow and be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would recognize who we are in Christ, the work that you've accomplished, the destiny that you have appointed, not just for us, but for the whole creation. And that we would be convicted by the non-human creation that believes you, that trusts you, that groans in longing, in the sure hope, in the certain hope of the day when it will share in the renewal that is in Christ our Lord. It waits for that day, the revealing of the sons of God, when all things will be renewed and summed up in Christ. And Father, if the non-human creation believes and trusts and waits, ensure confidence and hope, how much more ought we, who by your power and your goodness have been given the mind of Christ, who have been made sharers in his life, who have been taken up in your very life and love in him, we who are now the dwelling of the living God in the Spirit. How much more ought we to live in this sure confidence? 
These are days, Father, that give to us a rare opportunity to manifest the fragrance of Christ. When so many are fearful, when so many are despairing, when so many are looking about them for a rescuer, I pray that we would be authentic testifiers to the God who has triumphed, to the Christ who is enthroned. Not just because we can put evangelistic sentences together, but because we live lives of quiet, calm, confident faith and trust. We do pray that in all of our consideration, in our prayerfulness, in our study, in our contemplation, that you would be pleased to continue this work of transforming us by the renewing of our minds, that we would truly manifest the gospel of the kingdom, the God who has triumphed. And so meet us in this time. As Cliff prayed, I pray as well that you would attend to my thoughts, my words, the hearts, the minds of your people. And that you would, by your good spirit, communicate Christ to us and build us up in this most holy faith. We ask these things in his name, that he would be glorified in our midst. Amen. Well, as we continue in Hebrews, I just want to keep reminding you, as, as I do from time to time, that for all of the... Um, depth and profoundness of the, the, the vision of Christ that the writer presents in this epistle, this glorious Christology, if you will, we don't want to ever lose sight of the fact that the writer really wrote as a shepherd of the sheep. In, in many ways, we, we talk about uh, the two epistles to Timothy and Titus as the pastoral epistles, but this is very much a pastoral epistle. This is written by a man to encourage brothers and sisters in the faith, in their suffering, in their fears, in their doubts, in the challenges that they faced. And as he will say, in our resistance against sin, we have not yet resisted to the shedding of blood, as many of them did, and as certainly our Lord himself did. And so I pray that as we keep considering these things, and even though we're looking at the nuances of, of Christ's priesthood and his work, and we'll be dealing more and more with issues of the covenant and, and the atoning work of Christ and how all of these things play out, that we won't lose sight of the fact that these truths are to strengthen us in faith, to minister to our fears, to minister to our doubts not simply to gain a, a better theological understanding, but to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head and to find the resource in him for all of the things in life that would, would challenge us. Well, this morning I want to conclude our consideration of chapter 7. And we've seen that chapter 7 has this figure of Melchizedek at the center of it. He becomes uh, kind of the, uh, the target point that the writer works off of in, in establishing ultimately the greatness of the Messiah as priest, 
the nature of his priesthood, the superiority of his priesthood, ultimately the covenant associated with that. So he begins then in chapter 7, as we've seen with a, a biographical sketch of Melchizedek, drawn from the one picture of him in the Old Testament, which is in Genesis 14. And then from that episode, in that sketch, he establishes the greatness of Melchizedek relative to Abraham, and more importantly to his argument, Levi, who was in the loins of Abraham, and whose own ministration was the outworking of the covenant with Abraham in its Israelite expression. So the greatness of Melchizedek relative to Abraham and Levi, and then again by implication, the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. And then by implication, because of the relationship between priesthood and covenant, the superiority of the covenant associated with Melchizedek relative to the Sinai covenant as that which uh, was founded upon the, the Levitical priesthood. And then ultimately, in concluding the chapter, the greatness or the superiority of the priest himself, the priest of that priesthood. So last week, we considered the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood from the vantage point of the inferiority of the Levitical priesthood. And then to finish off this week, I want to consider that superiority of that priesthood in view of the perfection of the Melchizedekian priest, the priest himself. This last section, we dealt with the first half of that last section last time as he fleshes out the greatness of this priesthood and priest. We saw last time the more general considerations from verses uh, 11 through 19, and then today we're going to consider verses 20 through 28, where the writer kind of digs down and starts dealing with more specific issues of the superiority of this priesthood and the covenant associated with it, highlighting uh, most particularly the respective priest himself, this one in whom the promise, the oath to Melchizedek or concerning the Melchizedekian priesthood has been fulfilled. So read with me. I'd like to uh, pick this up in verse 11 and then read through the end of the chapter again just to set the context. The writer says, If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, the Sinai covenant, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also, Torah, covenant, is what he's getting at. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is all the more clear if another priest does arise according to the order of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, genealogy, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is testified of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Turning to the only other passage that deals with Melchizedek, Psalm 110. 
For on the one hand, there is the setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they, the Levitical priests, indeed became priests without an oath, but he, this one who's referenced in the oath, he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee, the surety of a better covenant, the guarantor. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence, also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. The word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Very dense, very concentrated uh, content and presentation. Uh, And I don't want to get too bogged down in it because I want to keep the focus again on the fact that the writer is writing these things to encourage his readers to encourage their faith, to encourage their confidence, to encourage their hope. But the focal point of this last section is the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood resides or has its focal point in the priest himself. Not just the priesthood, but the priest himself. And, and I want to treat that under these two heads The betterness or the superiority of the priest is indicated by the divine oath. And then secondly, by the effectual ministration of that priest, by the divine oath and then by the ministration that priest undertakes. So he tells us two things. Again, he's deriving this from Psalm 110. There are two places in the scripture, Old Testament, that deal with Melchizedek. Genesis 14, the narrative, the story of Melchizedek as we have it, and Psalm 110, which ties Melchizedek in his priesthood with David and ultimately with the messianic promise that God had bound up in David. Here he's drawing uh, this idea of an oath from Psalm 110. So he says, in terms of the distinction between the Levitical priest and this priest, the first point of distinction that he notes here is the issue of an oath. Unlike the Levitical priest, this particular priest, this one who fulfills this Melchizedekian priesthood, received his ordination by means of an oath. Now that doesn't mean that the Levitical priest, priests and their priesthood were human innovations. They weren't. 
the Levitical priesthood and even the the line of priests that would man that priesthood, those things came by divine decree and divine determination. They weren't human innovations. In fact, whenever Israel tried to depart from the divine definition, there were severe consequences. Remember, even when the kingdom split and you had Jeroboam in the north who tried to establish his own priesthood so the people wouldn't have to go back to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, that was the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He set up his own priesthood with his altars at Dan and Bethel in the north. So the Levitical priesthood was very much a divine ordination. It was divinely determined, it was divinely devised, but it originated within the structure of the law of Moses. The law of Moses, the priesthood, was fleshed out in connection with that. Now, the law was ultimately founded on the priesthood, the law meaning the Sinai covenant, but God gave that priesthood and assigned the priests who would man it within the context of the covenant itself. And those priests were assigned on the basis of a genealogical prescription. As he says, the law of a physical requirement. God assigned the priesthood to Aaron, and he said all of the priests will be descendants of Aaron. Aaron being a Levite. So God gave the priesthood to Levi, specifically to Aaron, and all of the priests came through that genealogy. The law of a physical requirement. In contrast, Jesus entered upon his priesthood on the basis of God's oath as he is David's regal and priestly Lord. Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. And David says, the Lord says to my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. The psalm focuses on two things. A regal dimension, arise, conquer your enemies, establish your rule over your enemies. And then the Lord has said, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, in connection with David, brings together the priestly and the kingly dimensions in a messianic way. And we saw how that ultimately is explicitly accomplished in Zechariah's the prophecy of Zechariah concerning uh, Joshua the high priest. Zechariah chapter 6. So God's oath concerning that particular priest is tied to David and the Davidic covenant but one who would be a son of David, but also David's Lord. And you see Jesus dealing with this. All three of the synoptics have Jesus saying, let me ask you a question. Whose son is the Messiah? Well, he's David's son. Well, then how is it that David says concerning the Messiah, the Lord said to my Lord, sit beside me until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And they're like, hmm, how can he be David's son and David's Lord? 
But the point is, is that Psalm 110 is very tied into the connection between David as the prototypical king and the Messiah, but bringing in this idea of a priestly dimension as well. The other thing that he emphasizes here in Hebrews is that that oath came in the midst of, and I mentioned this last time, it came in the midst of the law of Moses, which established the Levitical priesthood. So the Levitical priesthood is in place and operative as it administers the law of Moses when God issues this oath. It's not all of that's gone away, now God comes up with something else. This oath concerning a priest and a priesthood is issued in the context of the law of Moses, in the context of the Levitical priesthood. But it obviously pertains to a priesthood outside of the law of Moses, and that transcends the law of Moses, and by implication, the Levitical priesthood. Ancient Israel would have understood that. From the minute that David pens Psalm 110, somewhere around 1000 BC, you already have God speaking into the context of the Sinai covenant, the law of Moses, the covenant relationship with Israel, and the mediating priesthood. You have God speaking of something that will extend beyond that, that will, that will operate outside of that and transcend that. How so? Because it's the promise of a royal priesthood. There were no, as I said, no priest kings in Israel, different tribes. That's at the heart of the, the writer's argumentation. You could not have a king priest in Israel. As I said, the closest that you see is David the king functioning as a priest because of his own typological significance in the salvation history. The enthroning of Yahweh on Mount Zion is a priestly, kingly work. And that's why you see David functioning as a priest in bringing the ark up to Jerusalem. So God's oath came in the context of the law of Moses, but in a sense, it phoenixes out of that. It looks to something outside of and beyond. And that speaks to the idea, at least suggests the idea of transience, impermanence associated with both the Levitical order and the covenant founded upon it. That's the reason why the oath is important. <laughs> there wasn't an oath that established either the Sinai covenant, but most especially the, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. But in the midst of that, God promises something beyond that that will transcend that and that will endure forever. Israel should have understood that, this, that the system that they were a part of, the way in which their relationship with God was ordered was impermanent. It was imperfect, as the writer says, not in the sense that it wasn't ordained and devised by God, but in the sense that it was non-ultimate. It would not endure. It wouldn't ultimately accomplish that which it symbolized. 
So the oath pledged to priesthood that exists outside of and transcends the law and its priestly order. And that in itself implies a new covenant that will exist outside of and transcend and ultimately bring to realization that which was embodied at Sinai. So the first thing then that the oath pledged was a different order of priesthood. And a different order of priesthood means that it's outside of the law of Moses and outside of the Levitical order. But the other thing that that oath promised was that that priesthood, and most importantly, the priest himself, who is promised in that oath, would be permanent. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Different order and an abiding order, a permanency not just associated with the priesthood, but with the priest who holds that priesthood. In that, you have the suggestion of immortality. Israel, hearing this and, 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 and engaging with Psalm 110, would have to be thinking, how can a son of David abide forever? And even connecting it with the Davidic covenant, the promise was, in your seed, David, I will establish your throne, your house, and your kingdom forever. Now, that doesn't demand that one king, that royal son, would endure forever. But now in Psalm 110, you have a more localizing of that idea of an abiding, everlasting house, throne, and kingdom being tied to a priest king who himself will abide forever. And these are things that God didn't make clear to Israel how it would work, but they were things they had to think about. How can this priest abide forever? So Yahweh's oath that comes in the midst of the law of Moses, that comes in the midst of the Levitical priesthood, both of which will endure for another thousand years, the oath pledged a distinct, unending priesthood assigned permanently to a singular priest. And in the fullness of the times, a thousand years later, that oath found its object in Jesus the Messiah. And Jesus obviously connected himself with Psalm 110. That's why you have that interaction with the Jews being recorded in all three of the synoptic accounts. That pledge was fulfilled, that oath was fulfilled in the son of David, but the one who is both David's son and Lord. Harkens back even to Isaiah 11 and the idea of the one, this messianic servant who is both the root and the stem of Jesse. He's the root of Jesse, but he's also the stem of Jesse. Jesse is David's father, right? This one is before David, but this one is a descendant of David. Again, the mystery, how would these things play out? How would God actually bring this to pass? 
But in Jesus, the Messiah, we see this one who is both David's son and David's Lord, the regal son who is the object of the Davidic covenant. And so the oath distinguished Jesus as he manifests himself to be the Messiah and therefore the one whom God swore concerning in Psalm 110. He is in that way distinguished above all of Israel's priests. And the minute Jesus connects himself with Psalm 110, we don't get it because we don't understand the priesthood and the issues. But that was a massive issue when he did that. One man has said Jesus was a one-man counter-temple movement, and, and that's very true. And again, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But you have a man arising on the scene who's claiming a priesthood, a different priesthood. And even he manifests that in the context where he will very shortly be going in and pronouncing condemnation on the temple. The fact that he is claiming to be this Melchizedekian priest means that he is, in a sense, delegitimizing the whole priestly system, which is the governing ruling system in Israel. By making himself the one pledged in Psalm 110, he is essentially setting himself above the whole hierarchy of Israel, the ruling hierarchy, the priestly hierarchy. This is why they were so upset when Jesus would forgive sins. Who does he think he is? It's not just that you know he can't, he can't forgive sins. It's that the forgiveness of sins was a temple function. It was a priestly function. The priests did that work, and they did it in connection with the sacrifices that were ordained by God. It was a temple ritual. And here you have this man who's not a priest, and he's not even associating what he's doing with the temple. He's out there doing the priestly work, the temple work in himself. And it's a way in which we don't necessarily catch as Gentiles how Jesus is in that way showing himself to really be the fulfillment of the temple. John makes a big deal about that in his gospel, as we've seen, as the dwelling of God, the place where heaven and earth come together, the place where the mediation of the relationship between God and men takes place. That was the temple localized in the priesthood. And by Jesus forgiving sins, he is assuming that to himself. He is a one-man counter-temple movement. And so he's, in a sense, in a very real way, and the Jews understood it, he is overturning the apple cart of the whole Israelite system. That's why they were so anxious to be rid of him. He was a threat to everything that Israel was. And that's at the heart of why they would even look at him and and observe him and see what he did and say, this is a man who's an enemy of Moses and Torah. God established the priesthood. God established the sacrifices. God established the order by which Israel's relationship with God would be administered and mediated. Who does he think he is? He's a blasphemer. That's how grievous and serious these things were. To claim the oath of Psalm 110 for himself was to very much jeopardize himself in his well-being in Israel. He was setting himself on the path to destruction. 
But the Hebrews writer recognized that by attaching himself in that way to Psalm 110 and therefore claiming to be a priest of a different order, a superior priesthood, the writer recognized because of the relationship between covenant and priesthood that Jesus was also claiming a better covenant. Another radically dangerous, seditious thing to do in Israel. This man is overthrowing the law, the prophets, Moses. Because again, if priesthood is the basis of covenant, and the writer says it is, then a change of priesthood brings a corresponding change of covenant. And it follows that the oath, therefore, which guaranteed a transcendent priest and a transcendent priesthood also guaranteed a transcendent covenant. The correspondence of covenant and priesthood means that a change of priesthood means a change of covenant with a new covenant that corresponds to that new priesthood in the ways in which that priesthood is distinct. And the writer will deal more with this as we go along. But here what he's getting at is that the oath promised a priesthood and a priest. And if that oath is embodied in Jesus himself because he is that priest, and since he is the singular priest of that priesthood, he embodies not only that priest promised in Psalm 110, sworn by God in Psalm 110, but he embodies in himself that priesthood. There is nothing of that priesthood outside of him. It's confined to him. And if, therefore, he embodies the oath of the priesthood and priest, he also, and in in that sense, uh, as embodying that oath, he is the guarantee of its fulfillment. It has its surety in him. He is also the guarantor of the better covenant. If he embodies the oath and the oath implies a better covenant, he's also the guarantor of a better covenant. And that's what he says. He with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. In the same way, also Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. If he embodies the everlasting new priesthood and its singular priest, Jesus is likewise the surety, the guarantor, that the new covenant grounded in his priesthood also shares those same characteristics. What? Unchangeable, everlasting. You are a priest forever, according to a new order. The covenant will also conform to that. A new order, everlasting, unchangeable. So the first way in which this priest is distinguished is by the oath and all that the oath uh, entailed and, and pledged. But also in the way now as Jesus is that priest, he carries out his priestly ministration. All of the things that we've considered so far suggest that the superiority of this new priesthood and its covenant go beyond simply the fact that that there is a perpetuity to it and a lack of change. 
Simply the fact that the Levitical priesthood ended, this one goes on forever. The Levitical priesthood saw lots of change within it, this one won't. There's something more than simply that. And that something, something more is, again, that it's associated with a better priest and a better ministration. Jesus himself, as the one who embodies the priesthood, he is that priest. Obviously, he himself, therefore, in his priestly work is defined by those same qualities of constancy and perpetuity. Constancy meaning no change. Perpetuity meaning everlasting. He's defined by those same qualities that define his priesthood. But those things, as they pertain to him personally, point to the larger issue, which is this idea of effectuality. Effectuality. And that's how the writer ends chapter 7. Israel's priests, preeminently the high priests, they were saviors. You say, oh, that's blasphemy. Jesus is the Savior. They were deliverers. They were saviors in the sense that their priestly ministration was to remediate problems in the relationship between God and Israel. People often stumble when they read through the the early chapters of Leviticus in particular, because as God prescribes all of these various offerings, guilt offerings, sin offering, burnt offering, meal offering, all of the different offerings, he keeps saying when this is done, it will make atonement for the people. It will make atonement for the sinner, for the offerer. The priest will make atonement for him. Well, I thought only Jesus made atonement. The priests were saviors in the sense that, again, they remediated. They they brought the remedy for the failures and the violations that undermined Israel's relationship with God. That was their role. They were the ones who maintained and preserved, remediated, the relationship of the covenant son with the covenant father. Individually and collectively, Israel was an unfaithful son. The covenant required Israel to be a son as defined and prescribed by the covenant itself. And the violation of the covenant was the failure to fulfill that sonship. God upheld the covenant with his son by means of the atoning and preserving intervention of the priesthood. And the writer here is specifically, and it will continue on in 8 and 9, he's specifically focusing on the Yom Kippur event. All of the priestly sacrifices were the means by which the relationship between covenant father and covenant son were maintained. But there's kind of the focal point in Yom Kippur. That's the one day of the year when atonement is made for everything. Not just individual sinners and individual priestly sacrifices, but the whole covenant system was atoned for once a year. And that was the day when the high priest and only the high priest would go in through the veil into the Holy of Holies. Every other day and every other priest never went beyond the outer room. 
the inner room where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the Shekinah was, where God's glory cloud resided, only the high priest went in and only once a year. But he went in first with an atoning sacrifice. He went in first with the blood of the bull for himself and his family. In other words, he first made atonement for the priesthood. Then he came out. Then he brought in the blood of the offering for the people. And there was atonement for the tabernacle, the atonement for the sanctuary, atonement for the whole covenant structure. And if that was received by the Lord, then Israel and the whole covenant relationship was atoned for and prepared for another year. That's the imagery that he's drawing from here. Israel's priests performed a saving ministration, but one that obviously fell short. They couldn't reconcile and bind men to God everlastingly. And there are two ways in which the writer shows that that was the case. The first is obvious. They were transient. They were mortal men. Death ensured that no priest would be able to save forever those for whom he interceded. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. He, on the other hand, because he abides forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. The transience of the priests, the fact that there were courses of priests, meant that they could not continue on. At the very least, death prohibited them from continuing. All intercession under the law of Moses was temporary. But the second thing is more important, which is this problem of weakness and failure. That dimension of shortfall was highlighted from the very beginning. When God marked out Aaron and his sons to be his priests, he put them through a ritual of consecration and ordination. You can read about it in Leviticus 8. And what was involved in the ritual of consecration and ordination for Aaron and his sons? An atoning sacrifice. And shortly after that, you begin to see how even in their consecration, they must be atoned for before they can even enter upon their priestly ministration. But very quickly, they already begin to fail in that ministration, showing that they themselves are subject to the same weakness, failure of those for whom they intercede. Remember the strange fire? I think it's chapter 10 of of, uh, Aaron's sons. And God takes their lives and they're, they're hauled out and dumped outside of the camp. And then even Aaron himself sides against God with Miriam, Moses' sister, remember? Aaron sides. And, and Miriam is, is punished in that. But Aaron himself becomes an opponent of God and his covenant and his order. 
weakness and failure. Israel's priests couldn't save forever those under their charge, either with respect to time, because they couldn't intercede forever because they would die. They couldn't save forever those under their charge, either with respect to time or with respect to ultimacy. When Paul talked about being blameless under the law, he wasn't saying I'm sinlessly perfect in the way we think about it. He's saying that God made provision in the law tied to the priesthood and the priestly ministration that dealt with transgression and violation. It made atonement in a way that in terms of the prescription and the definition provided under the law, one's covenant relationship with God could be maintained through the priestly ministration. But it couldn't ultimately deal with the problem evident in the imperfection of the priests and evident in their transients. They passed from the scene. And these are all things the writer's going to deal with in more depth. But this is where he's going with this as he kind of pulls in how it is that Jesus is a better priest. All that Israel's priests could do was illumine the concept of priesthood and God's ultimate design for it. They instructed the people, they guided them, they provided a provisional kind of of atonement and maintaining of the relationship for them, but they never really could achieve the end for which they existed. In contrast, Jesus is a permanent priest. His ministration is unbroken, it's everlasting. The way he puts it is he says, he always lives to make intercession. He always lives to make intercession. And in that way, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. He is an everlasting priest. He's not characterized by transients, but he's also a flawless priest, again, in two respects. And we catch the first one right away. He's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. He is a flawless priest in the sense of his sinlessness. He lived a sinless life, but he did so with a view. He lived as a sinless man with a view to becoming consummate man. Man as created by God according to God's design. Man according to what God would have him to be. Ultimately realized in resurrection and glorification. That's the second piece exalted above the heavens. He's flawless in terms of issues of sinlessness, but the sinlessness itself served the ultimate goal, which is consummate humanness. And that occurred through resurrection and exaltation. Jesus is God's human priest king exalted above the heavens and thrown to administer God's sovereign rule over his creation as true image son. But it doesn't end with him. Doesn't end with him. If it did, there would be no need for the cross. You've heard me say many times, the substance of atonement is incarnation. We think of atonement as the issue of the cross. 
But if atonement is the reconciling of God and his creation, that the substance of that is incarnation. What the cross did is bring the atonement that was really the whole person and life of Jesus. Jesus himself is atonement. It brought that reality to its climax as it pertains to other human beings and ultimately to the whole created order. So he has attained the human destiny of divine image son, but as man unto mankind. So this is the second piece. The first piece of his ministration is effectual in terms of who he is. The second piece is how it is effectual on behalf of the goal that he had for which he was sent as the son. A unique ministration. Jesus' exaltation as priest-king stood upon an act that was entirely unique. An act that more than anything else distinguished him from every priest before him. What is that? He was both priest and sacrifice. Before assuming his dominion as great high priest, great high priest meaning true image son, Remember, we, we keep emphasizing how this, this whole concept of Jesus' exaltation and enthronement at the right hand of power, chapter 2, even chapter 1, is about his assuming that place as true image son, consummate man. He's enthroned at the right hand of power as man. Before assuming that place of dominion as great high priest, Jesus abased himself to become the atoning sacrifice. Priest and offering are one and the same. That was never the case in Israel's life. Priest and offering were not the same. Jesus' priesthood originated in the Father's oath, but it was actually realized through his self-giving. The fulfillment of the priestly oath depended upon him becoming the priestly sacrifice. And just as no Israelite could ever claim the title of priest-king, no one in the administration of the Sinai Covenant, the Levitical priesthood, no priest in Israel could claim the title of priest-king. So also, and more importantly perhaps, no such priest ever offered himself on behalf of those he served. The obvious reason why they couldn't is because to offer themselves would be to end their priesthood. There's this very real problem of mortality. If a priest were to offer himself in that way, it would end his priesthood, it would end his ministration. Within the Levitical order, it was impossible that there should be an enduring priest who gives himself. If he gives himself, his enduring as a priest ends. If he endures as a priest, he cannot give himself. Those two ideas are bound up in Christ himself, bound up in Jesus himself. 
The other reason why no priest in Israel could give himself is because of the flaw that was inherent in them. And he'll say this at the end. The law appointed men who were weak. How could one of those priests, given the definition of the various offerings, their being without spot or blemish defined in a certain way, how could a blemished priest who needed a sacrifice for his own sake become a sacrifice for others? And that becomes, again, a huge part of the writer's argumentation. No priest could offer himself as an atoning sacrifice when he himself was in need of an atoning sacrifice. So I want to conclude this just by uh, the way the writer concludes with verse 28. Verse 28 is really his summation, bundling this all up. Bundling up what he said so far, and, and, and in a way that becomes the, the springboard for where he goes forward in chapter 8. For the law, and by the law he means the Sinai covenant, that which established the priesthood. The Sinai covenant appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law came in the context of the law. He doesn't mean after the law was gone, but after the ordination and installation, the establishing of the law. The word of the oath which came after the law ordains or appoints a son made perfect forever. The law of Moses, as I've said, is what appointed Israel's priests. It appointed those priests and the priesthood, it established the whole order of that, but in the midst of that structure, the God who had given the law interposed with an oath. In the midst of this thing that God puts in place, he issues an oath, which in a certain sense doesn't set all of this aside, but it says, this will be set aside. My oath speaks to something that transcends this, something that will endure beyond it. The oath pledged a priest and a priesthood outside of the law and transcendent in terms of duration, ministration, ultimacy, effectuality. The law and the oath each ordained priesthood and priests. The law did, the oath did. But he says the law was constrained to have to ordain men who were weak. And it wasn't just because they had to pick the priests from the tribe of Levi. And it wasn't just because they had to pick the tribe, the, the priest from uh, the, the household of Israel. It was because the covenant at Sinai had to pick priests who were human in the way that we know it. Even if the law allowed Israel to pick its priests from the whole entire human community, it would still be constrained to the same problem. It would pick priests who were weak, right? What that meant then is that the oath, if it called for priests of a different order, in the nature of the case, the oath was compelled to seek its priests 
outside of the human order as we know it. A human priest who is a human of a different order or, or operates in a way not subject to the same weakness and imperfection. Put it this way, one who is not rendered impotent and ineffectual because of weakness and transience. The law was confined to appointing priests who were sons only in the sense that the children of Israel were sons. Unfaithful, unbelieving, wayward, disobedient sons. The priests were the same sorts of sons. Sons in identity, covenant identity, and covenant calling, not in actuality. On the other hand, he says the oath, which reached beyond the law of Moses, from within the law of Moses, and transcended the law of Moses, appointed a man who is a son indeed. A son indeed. A man who fulfilled the human vocation of sonship so as to be made perfect forever. We have to understand, saints, even the concept of son of God. We attach divinity to that. But in Israel's understanding, in their expectation of son of God, they weren't thinking divine. Son of God doesn't mean divine. Now, it's taken on that connotation with us. But Israel was son of God. David was son of God. Man is son of God. Jesus' genealogy is traced back to Adam, son of God, right? Jesus is made a son forever. This doesn't mean, you know, his divinity is is up in heaven someplace. That's not the point. He's been made perfect forever as a son, as the one in whom God has fulfilled and embodied the human vocation of sonship. He has been made perfect forever, but as son for the sake of sons made perfect forever as man on behalf of mankind. The enthroned priestly image son who doesn't merely intercede for men, but whose intercession has its goal in them becoming all that he is. And I've been emphasizing this throughout. When we think of Jesus, the high priest interceding for us, we tend to think again, and and I know this sounds a little facetious, but it makes the point. We think of Jesus up there waiting for us to call out and say, hey, I need help with this. I need help with that. I need a job. I need this, you know. My legs bother me, whatever. I mean, Jesus, help me. And, And he's there to plead our case. That's not the fundamental way in which we understand his intercession. He has attained to this state, this reality of consummate humanness. He has become, through his own life and labor, the truth of what man was to be. And his intercession is that men would become all that he is and become heirs of all that he has inherited. This is really the idea in Romans 8, and I didn't know Cliff was going to mention it, but it it, it perfectly dovetails 
with this. When we think of this idea again of Romans 8, God works all things together for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Paul says, Christ Jesus who died, yea, rather is raised, seated at the right hand of God, continually interceding for us. It's not, you know, I'm not, today's bad, this is going bad, but God's going to work it together for good. So my miracle is coming tomorrow. My blessing is coming tomorrow. Yeah, today it looks pretty bad, but God's working it for good. The death, the ascension, the intercession of the priest king is the guarantee, the surety that we in him will inherit all that he has inherited. His exaltation as priest king is our destiny priests and kings to our God. Not just that I can call on him when something's bugging me here on the earth. And I'm not saying God doesn't care about our temporal issues, but this is much grander and much more glorious than simply our particular temporal circumstances. The goal of his interceding forever to save forever is that we would become all that he is. As he became all that we are, we become all that he is, heirs of all that he has inherited. That's the way that we should understand Paul's assurance that all things work together for good. I just want to read a little bit, and, and, and I'm done. I'm closing with this. But this, again, is taken from Torrance's book on incarnation. And, and I want you to think about these things in terms of we so depreciate what God has accomplished in Christ, what we're a part of, what his mediation means, what he's concerned with, what Jesus' exaltation is really all about and how it pertains to us. We really do depreciate it. And I want you to think about what he says here. He says, Jesus, well, for, he says, Jesus intervenes in man's state of enmity, both as the beloved son and as the loving God. That is, both as the elect one and as the electing one, as the chosen man and as the choosing God. It is as such that he binds humanity to himself forever, and yet he intervenes as the judge who comes to condemn sin in the flesh by his own holy life, and so also to hallow and sanctify human life for God. His was a steadfastness from both sides. On God's side, it's the steadfastness of love and grace, even in judgment, of electing love, even in condemning sin. It is the affirming and consummating love of union with men and women, even in the fire of the divine judgment that consumes them. On the side of man as elected and beloved, it is the steadfastness of obedience to God, of calling upon God in prayer, of trust, confidence in his righteous will and utter and absolute reliance upon him. It is the life of man being truly human. 
It is in the unity of this steadfastness, both divine and human, that there is at once the glorifying of God and the salvation of mankind. In this steadfastness, Satan and all the powers of evil are resisted and put to flight, defied, defeated, both by the God against whom they revolted and by man against whom they triumphed. You see, he is not just God unto man, but he is man unto God. It is in this steadfastness that the word of God is uttered in the incarnate life of the Lord Jesus, and the word of truth is uttered in which the answer of man is given in perfect correspondence to the word spoken. Together, that word and answer represent the divine decision and election of love and the human decision and appropriation of faith actualized in the historical life of the Son of Man from his birth to his resurrection and to his exaltation at God's right hand. In the face of this, it is utterly inconceivable that anyone man or woman should finally reject the saving love of God incarnated in Jesus, enacted in his vicarious and substitutionary death, and yet that is incomprehensibly what can and does take place. An utterly irrational event which we can only leave to the Lord God himself and his infinite mercy and judgment. He says, when we understand really what the Christ event was about and how God continues to work that work out in this working all things for good, the accomplishing of his purposes to sum up everything in the Messiah, it's irrational that men would resist this. Because the issue isn't simply that I can find, here's a way that I can be forgiven and escape hell fire. It's not that. It's that Every human being seeks to discern and to actualize his sense of his humanness. Everybody's on a quest of self-discovery and self-actualization, right? Well, Christ is the truth of me. He's the truth of you. The destiny that we all seek and long for and have some discernment of in the very depths of our beings is yes and amen in him. And to be those who are seeking our own destiny, our own uh, actualization, and to reject the truth of ourselves in the Messiah is the most irrational thing that a human being can do. It's to argue against the very deepest essence of our human longing, which is to come to discern and to be made one with the truth of who we are. Everybody asks the question, who am I? Why am I here? What is the world about? What is it to be human? Well, Jesus is the answer to that. And to not find the truth of ourselves in him is the great act of irrationality. That's what brings the condemnation of the last day. Not that Jesus didn't die for my sins. The condemnation of the last day is the utter incomprehensibility of refusing to find the truth of ourselves in the Messiah. Father, I know these are deep things, but they are things that are so important for us to understand. And and again, the writer did not flesh out these things because he wanted 
his readers to do some kind of a first century seminary course. He wanted them to be made steadfast and sure and have all confidence and sure hope. A hope that is an anchor that enters within the veil where Jesus has gone as a forerunner for us. Father, if we can get these things straight in our heads and even more if we can own them in our hearts, we will be steadfast. doesn't matter what's happening in the culture. doesn't matter what's happening in the world. The world has always been a vicious, brutal, deadly place filled with every kind of corruption. It runs on a lie. It's always run on a lie. All men are liars in the sense that they're living a lie. They are living out a humanness that isn't even true. The world has always been this way. But I pray that we would have the same confidence, sure hope, the same steadfastness that even marks the non-human creation. It knows that the day of its redemption, its renewal, its share in Christ's redemption is coming. And it amazingly understands that its renewal will come when the human creature is fully disclosed in its glorified perfection in the Messiah, the revealing of the sons of God. It longs for something that we don't even long for. We long for the world to be a better place. We long for political outcomes. We we long for cultural outcomes. We long for personal outcomes. We long for all kinds of things under the sun. What we ought to long for is the day of consummation when we and the whole human race in the Messiah will be summed up and glorified in him. And in that day, the day of resurrection and consummation, the creation will at last have its own share in renewal, a new heavens and a new earth. Father, this is what it means to trust that our God is working all things together for good. The Christ who is the enthroned priest king is the surety of the goodness that awaits us, the goodness that even now we are part of. Even now we are raised up in him, seated in the heavenly places in him, above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named in this age and the age to come. That is what is true in the Messiah. That is our destiny as well. May we have hearts and minds set on things above in that way. And may it encourage us. May it rid us of fear, insecurity, grumbling, murmuring, doubt. All of the things that are humanly unbecoming and are ultimately blasphemous because they lie against the truth of who we are. The truth of who we are in the Messiah, the truth of who he is, the truth of who our God is and what he has accomplished. Make us a gospel people, a people who truly testify to the good news of the kingdom of our God in Jesus our Lord. Meet us in our need. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.